Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How are y'all doing? Welcome to the show. Got a great show planned for you. We're going to be dropping into a conversation about addiction. Uh, I think this is important for everyone. You yourself might be struggling or wondering if you're struggling. You might have someone in your life who is or you think might be. Um... Or you want to just be prepared. You never know what's coming down the road. If you're a parent or a friend, these are the kinds of things we need to have in our back pocket, which that's why I think all these topics are so universal because we all have maybe a complicated or problematic relationship to different things in our life. Tonight, we'll be focusing mainly on a problematic or complicated relationship to drugs and alcohol. Uh, DMs, always open. So if you've got a question for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. That's where all the magic happens. Doesn't everything magic happen on social media these days? God bless it. Uh, yeah, so drop your questions in there. Maybe there's a topic you want us to cover. Bloop, right there. DMs, Loveline IG page. You want to hear from me? We really do. That's where these topics come from. A lot of them show up in my clinical practice and my own DMs, uh, the Loveline IG page. Put them on in there. So uh, before we get into the addiction stuff, I just wanted to do my due diligence. Uh, I wanted to just quickly spend a a little bit of time talking about ways we can kind of help with the climate emergency. Um, Is this a mental health issue? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it is. Why? A thousand reasons, because everything's interconnected. And I'm working with a multitude of clients that are talking more and more about their own existential anxieties around what's happening to the planet. But uh, remember, you know, basic needs and basic resources is a, is inherently tied to our mental health. You know, we can't even begin to <clears throat> look at diagnoses if someone doesn't have their basic needs met, food, water, shelter, housing. We have to make sure we just stabilize people, get them their basic needs, because a lot of times some mental health issues are just directly related to food insecurity, housing insecurity, financial worries. Um, mental health is woven into everything. I don't, in fact, there's nothing that doesn't have a mental health component, either as the cause or just, you know, as a result of. So it's in there. And also, I just want us to be um, good stewards of the planet because all systems interconnect. So what does that mean? It means if I'm working with someone on being a better husband or wife, we can also help that process along by helping them be a better, you know, family member or friend. It's it's a similar skill set. So <clears throat> It's not, you know, we want to we want to plug away with some of the smaller things. And for those that are saying, you know, small things don't matter, I was looking at um, a, a research piece, and it says, ready for this one. This is from something called the Drawdown Solutions Analysis. 
trust me, this is some deep, deep, deep research I was digging around in. And they, they revealed that individual and household actions have the potential to produce roughly 20 to 30% of the total emission reductions needed to avoid dangerous climate change. So 25 to 30%, that's pretty profound. Now, again, I always put the, I will always put the responsibility on the larger culprits. So we're talking about water waste. Well, you know, Pepsi Cola and Coke and all those companies are, are the number one. Uh, fast fashion is quite profound in its impact. So like we do have to go after these larger companies. And I will always say it's a little victim blaming when we tell individuals to take shorter showers. But yet we have these companies that are wasting water resources and causing far worse climate emissions. So like I, I, I'm, that's not lost on me. I'm not, I'm not naive. Um, <clears throat> but there are some things we can do. And I actually liked this because these felt achievable. First one is uh, cut down on your food waste. Buy only the food you're going to eat. Now, for some of us, we, we're not going to go to the market every day. I do. I like that. <laughs> and I like getting the right stuff and I can finish what I have. Uh, but just be a little bit more thoughtful. If there's certain things that you're always throwing out, is there a way to freeze them and hold on to them? I freeze a lot of things, my bread, uh, my fruits, my vegetables. Or should we stop purchasing You know, to that extent? Um, also replacing some of your meat and dairy with more vegetable options. We know that the meat and dairy industry has a far larger negative ecological impact than even the automobile industry. So going vegan or vegetarian as close to as you can is going to be very powerful as often as you can. Also switching to clean energy. I know that that's not easy for everyone. Not everyone has the ability to go put some solar panels on their roof. I wish we did. Uh, but for those that can, by all means, please. Insulating your home, using LED lights. Uh, that was something significant that my household and uh, my family of origins household has done. Uh, the insulation, the LED lights, um, Again, the solar panels, not for everyone. Driving electric or a hybrid car, that is something I personally will be looking into for my next automobile, getting something electric or hybrid. Uh, I don't want to be reliant on gas and being a part of that. Um, also, ready for this one, getting a bike. A buddy of mine just got a bike. He got rid of his car. I loved that. Truth be told, his reasoning was not as altruistic as I'm doing it for the planet. It was because it was a financial thing, and I thought that was still great. He's saving on gas, car payments, and insurance. And a uh, bad boy's going to be, you know, crack-a-lacking around on his little bike. Boop, boop. It's a little dangerous in this city. Uh, I used to ride a bike around L.A., and I got hit a few times, and I was like, not doing that anymore. But that is an option for some people, especially if you live in maybe a suburban or rural area. How stunning would that be? Um, but if not, maybe doing rideshare, you know, getting everyone in. Uh, flying less. I love this one. Someone, they were like, stay local. Just make a video call to your family and friends. I don't know about all that. I need the uh, eye contact, the touch, and the time together. I'm not going to just, you know, not ever fly again, but flying, it's a big one. So maybe you can ride your bike cross country. That's an idea. And then finally, reduce and recycle. You know, avoid using single use plastic and recycle. Those are all a few things we can do. That's always what I ask of people. Just, just, just be a part of the solution on some level. You know, don't have to be perfect. All right, more to come. We'll be talking about addiction. Stick around. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on Channel Q and Odyssey. We'll be back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, 
celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, y'all, we're back. Sorry, I'm still laughing at my jokes from last segment. Um, if you don't laugh at your own jokes, who's going to laugh at them, you know? They used to say, if you can't love yourself, how, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? Well, you know, again, um, we can love others while working on learning to love ourselves. And in fact, loving others reflects back our worth and value and helps us internalize it and then care for ourselves. So that that one's kind of bunk advice. But uh, I do appreciate, though, the, the deeper truth, which is if you don't laugh at your own jokes, who's going to laugh at them? Um, I had a father who always laughed at his own jokes. I always thought it was the most adorable, endearing thing ever. God bless. Um, okay, so we're talking about addiction. Listen, this is a really heavy topic, so I'm not in any way attempting to make light of it. It's um, earth-shattering for those that are struggling with it or you know, the loved one who's watching someone struggle with it. But I always think it's okay to find joy and, and, and levity in some of these topics. So just kind of front-loading that. Um, you know, addictions... A really interesting, interesting topic. Uh, the research is constantly changing. And one of the things I've noticed is within 12-step programs and even addictionology treatment centers, uh, we're operating from some outdated models. And, uh, you know, I'm a man of science and I'm always looking at the, the, the latest theories. And so it always kind of bums me out when I realize we haven't advanced. And I also appreciate trigger warning that this topic is triggering for some people, especially some people that are licensed therapists working in the field. Um, for those, I would just say, please keep looking at some of the critical work around how we're framing addiction. Um, one of the things I keep saying all the time is we know addiction is not a disease. We don't use the d- disease model anymore. Now, yes, if you go on some of these <clears throat> larger mental health websites, they're still using that terminology. A lot of the people that are working at these larger um, bureaucratic institutions and uh, organizations aren't revamping their verbiage on their own websites. That is often for a lot of political reasons. They've um, dug their heels into the way they've been doing things. But uh, those of us on the ground uh, who are doing direct service and, and doing a lot of the research... Ooh, we're seeing the tides changing, <clears throat> and I'm thankful for it. So again, all that to say that, um, excuse me, I have the air conditioning on. Every time I have that, my throat gets a little phlegmy. Uh, just thought I'd kind of throw that out there. But uh, we know it's not a disease. We we know that it is something that is learned. We know that it's a result of trauma. We know that it's very much rooted in attachment issues. But I don't I don't want to get hung up on the um, the framework behind it. We actually have done an entire show on that. What I really, really want to talk about is more just how do we help ourselves or how do we help those that might be struggling? So just wanted to throw some stats at you. Um, it's really hard. It's a hard thing to diagnose in teens because, you know, adolescence is a time of a lot of 
poor impulse control, poor boundaries, a lot of, you know, lower level executive functioning. Uh, we're influenced by the norms and values of our social group. It's a time where you're going through developmental milestones and, and, and rebelling and, and exploring. And it's really hard to label a teenager as an addict. So I always say to people, be very thoughtful and very cautious. That, that doesn't mean everything's a free for all. That's not at all what I'm saying quite in fact, quite the opposite, teens need adults to put structures in place and boundaries and, and awareness and accountability. I'm not, not saying it's a free-for-all, but what I'm saying is we want to be very thoughtful about applying a label like addict to a teenager, which is something that can carry, can be carried with them throughout their life and that can sometimes have a negative impact. So I just want to be thoughtful that adolescence is a difficult time and most people who have problematic drug or alcohol use in their teenage years outgrow it. And so we want to be very thoughtful about how we kind of approach it with kids. 70% uh, of Americans use alcohol. Um, <clears throat> that's a big number because, again, remember, alcohol is something that unfortunately is woven into everything, right? It's Friday night. Let's drink. It's your birthday. Let's drink. I'm having a rough day. Let's drink. It's Tuesday night on board. Let's drink. Friends in town. Let's drink. It's a holiday. Let's drink. Alcohol is everywhere. Um, so 70% of Americans use alcohol. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Only 6.6% .6 have problems. So most of us are able to drink, what word do you want to use? Healthy, functionally. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, critical thought would say, well, what's your definition of drinking effectively? Uh, some, they're going to give it a little more leeway. Others, it's going to be a very narrow definition. I, For me, I would say that number is going to be low. I'm a little more uh, cautious and I would guess that a lot of things that we've normalized <clears throat> might be a sign of a little bit of a problem, but we're a little familiar with it. So it might not fall under someone else's definition of what problematic use looks like. So I think 6.6 .6 is probably a little low. I think people, again, have given themselves a little bit of leeway, but I think that we should definitely take some time to look at the role anything plays in our life and what changes might need to be made, in, in including the removal of it, if it's not letting us live the life we wanna lead. So that's always kind of my entry point. There's a lot of wacky definitions out there for addiction, and what it is never about is how much you use. It's usually about the outcome or the result of your use. Um, now, looking at some of the research from trauma, because that's some of the most robust stuff we have out there, is that, listen to this one. Um, this is actually a reason why I go on and on and on about a lot of the other things we go on, I go on about on the show because of the stats that show us what happens as a result of trauma, which is why I'm always talking about how to stop the intergenerational transmission of abuse, how to learn to better self and co-regulate, how to be a better partner while dating. All of that is an attempt to heal and resolve trauma. So here's the thing. Trauma work is often not even about using the word trauma or talking directly about the traumatic event. We don't do that anymore in the field. We don't have to go back through the history. We can work on trauma the only way we can, which is often with how it manifests itself in the current, which is woven through everything. So just know that we're doing trauma work even when I'm talking about topics like you know having toxic friends and how to set boundaries. We're doing trauma work whenever I say paying attention to the impact what you follow on social media has on your psyche. We're doing trauma work when we're talking about better parenting skills. We're doing trauma work when we're talking about how to regulate ourselves. All of that is part of this. Um, <clears throat> when we come back, we'll, we'll look at some of the stats, which I, I, you can look at it however you want. It's either horrifying and it's like an, oh no, what are we going to do? Or it's the opposite. It's very empowering realizing if we can resolve some of this, look at the kind of impact we can have on resolving a lot of what are really harsh, hard, hard, lifelong consequences 
of some of the things we do to each other because there's an entire book written on this. It's absolutely stunning. And it's basically like, Hey, we wouldn't need therapy or medication for in a lot of cases if we were just more caring with each other. So we'll dive into that when we come back. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on Channel Q and Odyssey. Stick around. We'll be back. All right, we're back. Um, so we're looking at some of the stats that really help us understand the impact trauma has on people who have a problematic relationship to drugs and alcohol. Again, that's the word I use. Not everyone likes to use the word addict. Um, I think, man, I guess before we get to stats, let me put this out there. A very controversial point, very hard for some people to hear, but up until, well, still 12 step program is very much one of the leading contributors to how we look at drugs and alcohol. Um, it has a strong foothold. I think the program's been very helpful for a lot of people. It gives people a safe resource to learn about drugs and alcohol. It gives people a great place to build community and to build a sober social network. It gives people access to sponsors. And if you find a good sponsor who works with you on the steps and doesn't try to become your therapist or run your life from a place of their ego, you have a really great primary support. Um, it's a place to process collectively some of the trauma that has led you to misusing drugs and alcohol. Um, it's accountability. It gives you access to a spirituality, a lot of really beautiful things. But the problem is, is that system and their theories haven't been updated. They still use a disease model, which we don't use anymore. Um, they still rely on some concepts that again, we don't really see as part of harm reduction. I use a harm reduction model, which means I just want people to live a great life. I just want people to survive. And that's going to mean something different for everyone. What the harm reduction model really preaches is sobriety or total abstinence isn't a realistic goal for every single person. Some people will always have drugs or alcohol as a part of their life. And we don't just kick them out. We don't call them lost causes. Um, we don't shun them. We realize, oh, it's going to just be about improving their lives in some capacity. Not everyone identifies with the word addict because some people, like when they're in their teenage years, maybe they misuse drugs and alcohol to a way that might look like addiction, but then they outgrow it. Most people outgrow a lot of things. And for some people, they might just have an issue with a drug, but they don't have a problem with alcohol or vice versa. And so these words are a little global. These words are a little hard for some people. Some people who have been an oppressed excluded minority or identity really aren't going to benefit from stepping into something that tells them they're further powerless. So you can enter this from however you want, but the way I relate to it from a harm addiction model is I usually say problematic relationship with drugs and alcohol because the word addiction is misused in our culture. Um, and I think it's over applied often. So we're trying to normalize these terms because when we say problematic relationship to drugs and alcohol, that, allow, that allows the inclusion of people who don't identify with the word addiction, but still maybe want to look at the role that drugs and alcohol play in their life and may, maybe want to change it a little bit or improve. So it's a more inclusive term and also, again, not very pathologizing. I, won't, I don't do pathology. I don't pathologize people. There's nothing motivating coming from a place of shame. I know that that works for some people. Do your thing. But for a lot of other people, they want more fluidity. And that's why we talk about things even like California sober. There are some people where their issue was heroin or crystal meth or alcohol, but marijuana is something that is still fun, still enjoyable, or actually helps them stay sober. And so I do work with people where the use of marijuana is a part of their sobriety, just like the use of psychopharmacology. Maybe they're taking an antidepressant or anti-anxiety med. Other people are taking steroids and drinking caffeine while still sober. These are all mood altering substances. There's no distinction in a lot of ways between these. So everyone gets to have their own definition of sobriety. So that's why we say, if you have a problematic relationship with drugs and alcohol, you think you're an addict, go work with a therapist, a harm reduction therapist, so you can figure out what you need versus just being given this broad sweeping thing of, you can never use any drugs or any alcohol ever again. 
again. It's like no one size fits all. And that's why I, I roll my eyes. A lot of treatment centers are like, we, we give everyone a specific, you know, treatment plan, da, 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 but then everyone's run through the same programs, the same theories that that's not appropriate. So let's look at some of these stats. Um, so drug and alcohol addiction, this is again, using the languaging of this gigantic study. This came out of Kaiser hospital. This is a longitudinal study that was looking at research well over a decade. And it was seeing that those individuals, <clears throat> individuals within their system, um, and they were looking at early adverse life effects. And they were looking at those that had, um, a history of abuse or neglect in their childhood had two times an increased risk of having a problematic relationship to drugs and alcohol. So that's not about the genetics of a disease. That's about a trauma model, which is the one I come from that a problematic relationship to drugs and alcohol, what people would call addiction is a result of abuse and neglect two times increased risk. Ready for this one? For those that have had a history of sexual abuse, they are at 15 times an increased risk again, because addictions are the result of trauma. It's an attempt to cope. It's an attachment issue. It's a faulty coping mechanism that's been learned and reinforced to the detriment of relationships, which is where the attachment piece comes in. Instead of turning to the world and others and things that give us purpose and meaning um, so as to get whatever it is we get from that, all the, all the benefits, people turn to drugs and alcohol. That's the resource. And, um, now, you know, if you want to push even further outside of that, check this out. So looking at the result of trauma, um, if someone has had three different kinds of abuse, um, they're 18 times more likely to have psychosis five times, five different kinds of abuse, which is heartbreaking. No one should have even one. Imagine having three kinds or maybe it's physical, it's sexual, it's also emotional, 18 times more likely for psychosis, I said that. But for people that have had five different kinds of abuse, 193 times more likely to have psychosis. Because trauma is the gateway to a lot of you know drug and alcohol use. We used to say like, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. If you start smoking marijuana, next thing you know, you're on heroin. Not true. Uh, trauma, trauma is what we have to worry about. All right, we gotta take a break. We'll come back, do some DMs, and then we'll get back to talk about addiction. You're listening to Love Lime with Dr. Chris. Channel Q and Odyssey. Stick around, y'all. All right, y'all, we are back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Hannah. I've been noticing lately that my energy to do things has been really low lately. Yes, let me just stop there for a second. Uh, that's what a lot of people are experiencing, and I think it's you know, it's a multitude of things. Remember, um, how we feel in our bodies is the result of a lot of different things. It's our genetics, how much energy we have or don't have, how quickly or easily we're depleted or energized. It has to do with how much caffeine you're having. Are you having a caffeine cr crash? Um, it has to do with medications you're taking. It has to do with your sleep hygiene. Are you getting good, high-quality sleep? Um, has to do with the impact things around us are having. Are other people in your life not doing well or maybe stressed out and you're absorbing or internalizing some of that? I know uh, I'm working with clients that their mood is, or their energy is low as well because of their consistent watching of the different things on the news, whether it's you know a sexual abuse trial, 
um, a, a cop killing someone trial or what's going on in the Ukraine or the climate disaster. I have clients that are feeling very depressed due to the climate disaster and some other things that are going on in the world. Roe versus Wade, people's you know body autonomy is on the line. We're worried about gay marriage getting taken back. So there's a lot of different things. And so if you're working an exhausting job and you're not getting good sleep, and you're you know, spending your downtime watching this horrific stuff on the news, and then you're worried about your right to an abortion, uh, yeah, your mood's gonna be low. And I think some of us automatically go to this chemical model for our moods, and we think you know, depression's a brain disease. No, it's not. For some people, they might have a genetic predisposition, but for a lot of us, it's situational and contextual. And a lot of us, when we're depressed or low energy or whatever it is, it's the result of what's going on around us. And no medication will change the world that you're participating in. That's an action that needs to be taken. So again, if you're low energy or sad or depressed because of a divorce or a breakup, that's an appropriate response. That is not a disorder that requires medication, although medication can be appropriate for some people to help them get through that difficult time. But work still needs to be done to change that context or situation. Um, so just, just know that I'm going to go back to your question. The rest of your question said, my friends will ask me to do things. It's always a game time decision for me. I can never commit to things in the future and fear that I'll actually be forced to do it. My mom thinks it's seasonal depression because this tends to happen once a year. I'm not sure it might sound stupid, but the seasons, uh, am I depressed? That's the question. So could it be based on seasonal affective disorder? Possibly. It's really hard to say. Um, we don't have any kind of test to determine why someone is depressed if they even are at all. Remember, our diagnoses are culturally situated. Different cultures will diagnose depression differently. Some cultures don't even believe in the presence of depression. They have a completely different framework for it. Just like here in America, if you hear voices or see things that don't exist, we define that as psychotic, delusional. In other countries, they have conversations and spend time with people that are no longer with us. That is normal. So they wouldn't see that as a problem. So remember that our, our definition of depression is culturally situated. Um, based on the beliefs we have as to how someone should feel or should not feel. That's how we determine what's pathological based on a statistical norm and what's common. Um, so could it be due to the changes in the weather? Possibly, especially if this is always happening once a year at the same time. Could it also be that you aren't getting good quality sleep, you're stressed out about work, you're drinking too much caffeine and a multitude of other factors? Yes, it's possible as well. Could it be that you have too high of expectations on yourself socially because you think if other people can go out a certain amount of time, I should be able to as well. Could it be that you're burning yourself out and then by the time the weekend rolls around, you're too tired to do something and you should honor your body and rest instead? Or if you want to socialize more, cut back on your work or delegate some responsibilities. So I feel like this is a question for therapy. Um, there's so many pieces that could be at work here. So yeah, I hate when that's the answer, but sometimes that's the important answer. I can't diagnose from afar and I, I would never want to. Um, so I'm trying to make this question more of a globalized topic to look at all the different elements in our life that we might want to address or change uh, before just saying I'm depressed and therefore maybe I need medication. That won't change all the things we talked about. If I'm maybe going, like I said, into some therapy to really sort through what's going on and to find a longer term solution. All right. If you've got a question for us, drop in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. Check out past episodes over at wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for Loveline and click on it. You can binge, post, re-listen, and share. We'll be back, though, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on Channel Q and Odyssey. Stick around.
All right, we're back. Time is flying. I'm just trying to get through these stats. Um, but I, I find this stuff really meaningful. So uh, Kaiser Hospital did a really big uh, study looking at what happens to individuals that had a lot of um, negative things happen in their early life, adverse you know events. And excuse me, they're looking at abuse and neglect. And they're looking at what happens to these individuals, which is what helped us get a better understanding of things like addiction. And those that had abuse or neglect in their history had two times an increased risk of addiction, sex abuse 15 times. And then we look at other mental health issues. If they had three kinds of abuse, 18 times more likely to have psychosis, five kinds of abuse, 193 times more likely. Let's look at bullying. Again, why I'm always going on and on and on about all the different things I talk about on the show. I don't always call out what it is we're working on in doing so, but here's an example of why all that matters. So for people that have experienced bullying, they're two times more likely to have mental health issues. They are four times more likely to develop diabetes and people that have been bullied are nine times more likely to develop heart disease because they're living in a constant state of fight or flight and stress. They don't feel soothed by the world or by social interactions. It's all very systemic, which is why I always say we can't look at mental health without considering physical health and we can't talk about health and physical without looking at the impact of mental because it's all systemic. Bullying can lead to diabetes. Bullying can lead to heart disease. That's how connected all of that is. Um, So let's get back to the addiction talk. So we're trying to challenge things and the reason why this matters and a harm reduction matters is because not everyone should be held to the standard of complete abstinence. There are gonna be some people where the work is about how do we make the use less harmful? How do we reduce the impact it has? How do we keep people alive? I don't care about getting people off drugs and alcohol. I want to keep people alive. I want people to be healthy, happy, and functioning. And for some people, that means changing what the treatment goal is. So everyone that comes into my office that says, oh, you know, I think I'm an addict. I'm not like, all right, our goals is, is total abstinence. That's not reasonable. And that keeps some people feeling like they're a failure. And that keeps some people from ever getting brought into a family or a social world because they're stigmatized. They're shamed. They're, because the expectations are sometimes too high. So we have to work on me people where they're at. So that's part of the harm reduction model that I will always advocate for. You have to figure out what is reasonable or realistic for you or the person in front of you. And I'm here for whatever someone needs to do to improve their life. Um, So when I'm working with someone on this, one of the things we talk about is looking at what might be some of the high risk people, places, and things. And I want everyone to pay attention to that. So again, if you're thinking this topic isn't for you because drugs and alcohol out the door, you're deeply sober, whatever it is, or you don't have a problem, you can apply all of this to just general mental health. So again, when someone's saying, I need to get away from a substance, we say, what are the things that make it easier for you to use or trigger you to want to use? Those are the high risk people, places, and things. But I want everyone to say that. If you're working on learning to feel better about your body, I'd want you to say, what are the people, places, and things that make me not feel bad about, that make me not feel good about my body, I should say, or that trigger me to start overemphasizing or thinking about my relationship to my body in a negative way? I want everyone to ask that question. But addicts, more powerfully so. So who did you use with? Who triggers you to want to use? What are the situations in which you feel as though it's gonna be very hard for you to maybe not engage in some of this use? And that's the site of where the work initially has to begin is removing yourself from those people, places, and things that really make you start wanting or set you up to not be able to stop. Because once we get into, so remember, here's here's what I used to always say when I was running the groups at the Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers, I'd say to them, remember, you start to get high before you even pick up 
whatever it is we're talking about. Because uh, we talk a lot about dopamine and I don't wanna to get too deep into it. It's it often misused and misunderstood, but it's an anticipatory thing. The release of it is really anticipation. So we, we can get the highest when we're on our way to go pick up, let's say the drugs or the alcohol. And I always, do food, I always use food examples. That ice cream tastes the best when you are standing in line and you are looking at it and you are smelling it. You're already salivating, you're licking your lips. You can't get it in your hand fast enough. I'm one of those people that the minute they hand me my ice cream, even as they then go to ring me up, I'm already starting to eat it. And that is when it's at its best. And we know that it has diminishing returns. Every time you take a spoonful, it tastes really good in the beginning, but it starts to diminish. It's not as delicious. Sometimes you don't even finish it or you finish it because it's there in front of you and you're trying to get what you got at the beginning, right? You're chasing that initial quote unquote high in theory. So that's why we don't wanna get ourselves in positions where we're triggered because our executive functioning starts to go offline. We start anticipatorily getting high and we're off and running and it's easiest for us to set boundaries and take care of ourselves before we step into that neurological shift. So the work is about not even, again, to use the food metaphor, um, the, the, the goal is to not even get into the ice cream shop. Okay. I'm not talking about food, but I am using a food metaphor. So I want to make that distinction. But if you were trying to not eat ice cream, you wouldn't be at your most robust in terms of impulse control and boundaries. If you were constantly stepping into ice cream shops or hanging around people eating ice cream, you would say that sets me up for failure or that sets me up to really just not have a great time because it's not always just about using it. Sometimes about what's the quality of your life while you're struggling to not use. Let's not hang out in the ice cream parlor. If you're not eating ice cream, that's not even any fun, but it's also going to be harder to say no. All right, we're going to come back. We'll keep talking about this. Um, then we'll be doing some DMs. So if you've got a DM for us, drop in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on Channel Q and Odyssey. We'll be right back. All right, y'all, we're back. And I was using a food reference. We're not talking about food as an addiction. We're talking about uh, a relationship to drugs and alcohol, but I'm using a food metaphor. We're talking about high-risk people, places, and things, and how you know if you are someone who is diabetic and can't eat sugar, it is not fun to sit in an ice cream parlor watching people eat. Well, whether or not you're worried about triggering, getting triggered and using drugs and alcohol, it in the very least is not fun to be around people while they're using often, but it's also harder to hold your boundaries while they're with them. And so part of the work of being any healthy adult is looking at the impact that people, places, and things have on you. And in terms of your goal, maybe you're saying, look, I have this social group and every time I'm with them, it brings out my bad behavior. They trigger and normalize bad behavior. So I have to look at the kind of relationship I wanna have with them. Drugs and alcohol very much also fall into that. So pay attention to that. What are the things that make it harder for you to use or what are the things that just really bring it up and keep it in your life? Um, and that's where we start to do this work of what are the things that are actually very supportive of the kind of person you wanna be? How can we spend more time doing that? Because one thing I've learned that is a truism over and over is that it's far easier to crowd bad things out by building in more good things than to just remove bad things and be left with lack and nothing. So for instance, if you're working on changing your social world, instead of just saying, oh, I'm getting rid of all my friends that are problematic, toxic, or use drugs and alcohol, start building healthy relationships with people and replacing versus just getting rid of the toxic people and sitting around doing nothing lonely. That's not gonna work. I would say start trying to make more plans with healthier people and crowd out the bad. So that's a really important part of this. Um, 
also figuring out like what you want your sobriety to be rooted in. No one, you know, Viktor Frankl wrote a really beautiful book, Man's, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I think it's called. And he was looking at the people that, you know, not necessarily thrived, but survived the Holocaust. And part of it was a psychological concept of if you have a reason, it makes survival far more doable if you find a purpose for something. Any difficulty that can have something purposeful within it is going to be something that helps us survive. So in order to stay away from whatever it is, fill in the blank, but we're talking about drugs and alcohol, you have to have a purpose and meaning for that. No one's gonna stay sober if their sobriety is rooted in misery or boredom. So there's a counterbalance to that. Like, what do you wanna now do instead? How can we center that in your life? And you want to start to create purpose and meaning that you would lose if you went back to drugs and alcohol, but you prefer what you're doing now more. So some people, rough example, I'm not saying please go start a family. I think that's a horrible solution, but some people might have one and they might say, listen, my purpose and meaning in my sobriety is going to be my ability to participate fully or differently as a family member, or let's say as a mother. And uh, that means more to me. And that's part of what helps me stay sober. Or they go back to school or into a career or into a relationship or a new social world. And that means more. Um, so that's part of it is you're not going to stay sober if your sobriety doesn't have a purpose and you have to tie it to something real. If whatever you want your purpose to be isn't powerful enough, it's just not going to quite do that. So there, there has to be a reason why, because sobriety can be a struggle. It can be hard at times. And again, our goals are most achieved if there's a value or a purpose and meaning in that struggle. So why are you sober? And if you don't have a good answer, it's going to be really hard. Why? What for? What do you want to do instead? You have to build that in. Now, again, that's stuff I shared on the show in reference to happiness. The happiest people are people that have career, things that they participate in consistently, where they're utilizing their signature skills. They walk away feeling like they've done something. That's just like human nature, but especially if you're trying to change the social world you're a part of and drug and alcohol use. That's huge. So you're going to have to build in a world that mirrors back the kind of way you want to live. You're not going to be able to go on your own, which is why 12-step programs are really helpful for some people. There's tons of other programs for those that don't want to participate in that. Google, there's new ones being started every day. But just know that you can't remove all these things and just live in misery or lack or loneliness and think somehow that it's sustainable. You have to start building in things that have more purpose and more meaning and more value. And you have to have a goal. There's got to be a reason why. Because that's what's going to really build up your motivation in those difficult times. And if there's no reason why, well, then why not? <laughs> Think about that. If there's no strong reason to not use, then in theory, one might say, well, then why shouldn't you? And so you have to build something robust on that side. Um, I think it's something that's not talked enough about. And also this idea that we can't thrive in all environments. So you really do have to look at the impact the environment you participate or live in has on you. When I was working in treatment, I sadly was aware of some of the neighborhoods and families and relationships and marriages and social circles that some people were going back into because they didn't have a choice or because they weren't willing to let go of it. I thought there is no way for them to survive within those systems. And, um, even if they didn't pick up drugs and alcohol, which most would, they're just not going to have a high quality of mental health or functioning. Because remember the bigger goal is not just don't use because 70% of people of the 70% of people that drink alcohol, only like 10% have an issue. 90% of drug and alcohol users have no problem. Um, so the issue isn't drugs or alcohol. It's, it's the things that that's, it's the, the negative consequences that they're causing. Um, so I want more than just abstinence. 
that's not the point. The point is to live a high quality life, which is why I love harm reduction. Cause it's like, how can we get there? For some people it's using less or using safer, you know, instead of using needles, smoking, instead of drinking every night, drinking every other night, instead of, you know, drinking these strong drinks, maybe watering them down. That's harm reduction. How can we reduce the harm it has until you're ready, if at all, to completely get so uh, abstinent, which some people don't fully want. But we want to meet people where they're at. We want to offer something. It can't be. If you don't want to completely get off drugs and alcohol, then there's no help for you. Never. It's what can we do? What advancements can we make? How can we help you stay alive? And that's why I love these safe injection sites. Those people are going to use either way. Let's offer them a place where they don't die because uh, human life matters. So let's try to reduce the harm any way possible, which is why we talk about making drugs legal so that people, if they want, can get treatment. But people using drugs due to early trauma shouldn't ever be punished and put in jail. That is not a reasonable response. Punishment? Punishment for someone who's got a mental health issue? When people relapse into d depression, we don't punish them. Why should someone due to trauma and other factors get punished for struggling with their coping mechanisms? Um, all right, we'll come back, keep talking about this, stick around, and uh, we'll be doing some DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on Channel Q and Odyssey. We'll be right back. So we're talking tonight about, you know, drugs and alcohol and addiction. And this is why we talk a lot about self-care as well is because some of what is a high trigger for relapse is burnout. People getting overwhelmed physically, people getting overwhelmed emotionally. So if you're someone who's working on sobriety, from anything, you especially have to prioritize self-care. I don't hear that being talked about enough. People will talk about people, places, and things, but we have to talk about the quality of your life and your mental health. Anyone who's in a 12-step program should also be in therapy. 12-step programs aren't trauma work. They're not supposed to be. 12-step programs aren't therapy. They are therapeutic, but they're community and social support to, to learn a few things and to have a resource and, and to connect to others. And that's a beautiful thing, but trauma work is a huge part of this because as we're learning, that is what sets up people to really choose the faulty coping mechanisms of drug and alcohol. And part of longer-term sobriety is not just looking at how do I get off or stay off, but it's also about building the kind of life that supports what I'm trying to do. And that means really not living in a state of burnout. No one is going to stay away from whatever it is they're trying to stay away from, you know, their, their anger issues, uh, emotional or physical abuse, problematic use of drugs and alcohol. No one's going to be able to pull that off if they're living in a chronic state of fight or flight or stress or recreating trauma. So trauma work has to be a big part of this. And part of trauma work is self-care. Am I centering leisure, pleasure, and joy in my life? That should be a goal of your sobriety. Now that I'm off of drugs and alcohol, what am I doing with that other space in my life? It should be rest. It should be leisure, things that give me happiness. It should be pleasure. What, what brings joy into my world? And how am I making sure I'm not living in a state of burnout? Burnout will not only lead to relapse, but burnout is not the, the, the goal of our lives. So I, I'm talking more and more about that, but also learning regulation because people don't relapse when things are going well generally. People relapse when they're put around a lot of triggers or when they're living in a state of burnout or overwhelm, and so they're not able to hold boundaries or tap into forms of motivation and resilience. 
very hard when we're not feeling stable or we're not feeling really centered in our lives. And also we very much get dysregulated. A lot of people relapse when they're heartbroken and they got rejected from a breakup, when they lost a job, after they had a fight. It's, it's often born out of a lack of emotional regulation skills. And that's why part of sobriety is learning that. And I talk a lot about that on the show. I mean, the most powerful ones will always be the S's. Social, when you're feeling dysregulated, instead of turning to drugs and alcohol, turn to another person. That's a huge part of sobriety. Reach out to someone and process and share. Also, senses. When you're feeling totally dysregulated, instead of turning to drugs and alcohol, can you go eat something? Can you go visualize and look at something that's soothing? Can you go listen to soothing music or something meditative? How about smell something? Go outside for a walk. I mean, we work with the senses as a way to ground ourselves and soothe ourselves. Then... So we did social, we did senses, and then we do spiritual. Do you believe in a higher power? Can you turn it over to God? Can you pray? If you're not someone who is religious or believes in God, go into the other definition of spirituality. Can you meditate? What is your understanding or meaning that you can make out of this? Can you read something that's inspiring? I'm always surrounding myself with inspiring mantras and passages. Um, and then finally, sometimes it's about just getting out and moving our bodies. So that's not necessarily an S, but that's a huge part of um, self-regulation because without the ability to regulate and to deal with our discomfort, a lot of people, they go back to their habits and patterns of drugs and alcohol because that's always what they've done. And drugs and alcohol, it works. You know that that will work. You know that if you take the drug or the alcohol, it will soothe you, it will dissociate you, it will disconnect you, it's not gonna let you down. Yes, it leads to negative consequences and harm, but it's going to do the coping that you're, you're, you're relying on it for. So we have to practice new forms of coping. It's not enough to just be abstinent off drugs and alcohol. It's what else is going on within that. And so again, it's about self-care, building a life that's worth being sober for, helps you stay sober, learning self-regulatory skills, and again, finding purpose and meaning in your life. But that's, this, is, this is for everyone. I mean, this is the same thing for relapse around a lot of mental health issues. Um, so tap into all that. Because yes, without all of that work, some people do stay quote unquote abstinent. But what's the quality of their life? Because that always means more to me. You know, we, we're, we're here and I want people to be using their time in a meaningful, productive way. Um, and, and remember, the primary cause of addiction is experiences during childhood, trauma, uh, not learning coping mechanisms or coping skills, um, being around high-risk people, places, and things. It's not the substance themselves, because again, about 90% of people don't have a problem. It's the people themselves and the way they're using the substances as a um, you know, complementary form of trying to find something that wasn't instilled or internalized on their own. Um, so, you know, again, that's why I always keep talking about the social piece. No one's going to survive or thrive or get sober or stay sober in isolation. And that's why we have to stay close and we have to stay connected. It's an adaption. And we want people to turn to others and purpose and meaning and not towards themselves or towards substances. Um, coming up next, we're going to do some DMs and uh, past episodes of the show. Want to check them out over at wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for Loveline and click on it. But don't go anywhere. We'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on Channel Q and Odyssey. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast t-mobile has invested billions to light up america's largest 5g network from big cities to small towns including right here in yours and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. All right, y'all, we are back, and uh, now it is time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Uh, This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I think my best friend is in love with me. See, this is a rough one, because before we get into the question, I want to remind everyone that just because you enjoy someone on one level doesn't mean we should push for more because more is always better. Sometimes if you enjoy someone's friendship, the best way to preserve that friendship is to just stay as friends. Because remember, we afford our friends more latitude, more leeway, we let go of things. Where once we're dating somewhere, so when the attachment system kicks in and we primatize them and we, we, we put a lot of expectations on them. Because again, we have a very toxic model of how we run our relationships and we put very odd expectations on our partners and we think we own them and off and running we go. Um, so if you're friends with someone and that's working out, keep it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Changing the structure changes the entire relationship. So just because maybe you're also friends that hook up sometimes doesn't mean you should try dating because that's changing the structure. Now there's different expectations that you'll call me every day, that I'm going to see you on Valentine's Day, where before as friends with benefits, it was lighter, it was simpler, and that's why it worked. So again, changing the structure of a relationship means it's going to get harder and more complex. And often it's best to leave things alone. So if you value this friend, prove it by just staying friends. Because friendships have more sustainability and um, more, um, uh, what's the word? More resilience and more sustainability than romance. 
yep, you have a higher chance of it ending if it's romantic. But back to your question. I, di- I digress. Think I'm in love with my friend. She hasn't addressed it yet. Oh, no, you said I think my best friend's in love with me, but she hasn't addressed it yet. Okay, well, so maybe you're wrong. Um, I'll catch her staring at me. She gets defensive every time I bring up someone I'm talking to. She'll go out of her way to make sure whatever I need at that time gets done. So she seems a little maybe people-pleasing or she's just a great friend. Um, We'll see. More to come. While I appreciate it, you said, I can tell that there's been a switch and something. Oh, sorry. I can't. I don't know why I can't read this. I can tell that there's been a switch and it's starting to get uncomfortable. Do I ask her about it? I love these questions. Well, here, let me tell you this. I can't answer that for you. I certainly don't have the answer. No one else in your life does either. And that's why I lovingly laugh when people want to read text messages to me or text messages to their best friend and say, what do you think? My answer is always, I don't know. Go ask them. Because part of my answer is, what kind of relationship do you want with this person? Do you want a close, intimate, transparent relationship? I hope you do. Well, then absolutely say, hey, can we talk about something? Here's what I'm noticing. Help me understand what this is about. Don't assume Don't diagnose it. Don't say, I think you're in love with me, but share the evidence that you're encountering. Share with them the experience you're having. Let them weigh in on it. The best best dynamic is always a one-to-one relationship. So if you wanna be a good friend, tell your friend to go ask or, or go directly to the person. That's always should be the advice. The advice should be, I don't know. I'm happy to listen. I'm happy to share my thoughts. I'm happy to hold space for you, but we'll never know, we're guessing. (laughs) <laughs> you should go ask them. <laughs> do you, th- you want to know if someone's mad at you? Go ask them. Do you want to know if someone doesn't want to be your friend anymore? Go ask them. Do you want to know if someone has a crush on you? Go ask them, right? That's the only person who can answer this is your friend. And again, it does become a question of how much closeness and intimacy do you want in your friendship? And this is a way to practice that and to normalize that. So sounds like it's possible, but it could be something else. It could be that they're afraid of losing you. It could be that they're just very sensitive. It could be that you're completely misreading this. It could be that they thought there was food in your teeth and there consistently is. I don't know, but there's nothing wrong with bringing this up. We have to be able to have difficult, anxiety-inducing, and vulnerable conversations with anyone who's in any kind of close and primary role in our life. So here's the opportunity to honor that and to practice that. I would want a friend to give me the opportunity to weigh in on whatever they're wondering about. Just like if I'm in a relationship with someone romantically, I'd want to be given that opportunity. I wouldn't want them to be decoding my text messages when they can just ask me. (laughs) So that's my question back to you. Why can't you just ask? Because it's uncomfortable. That's never a reason to back away from something. Go do it. Go get comfortable, you know, your relationship and you will be better off for it. All right, y'all, that is our show. We'll be back tomorrow, so join us then. In the meantime, drop some DMs in our Love Line IG page in those DMs. And maybe if there's a question you want us to answer, something you want us to circle back, drop deeper into, plug that in there as well. And past episodes of the show, you can always check it out over at wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for Love Line and click on it. Spend the rest of the night, though, uh, being kind to yourselves and those around you. Tons of joy, pleasure, and self-care. Thanks for hanging out, y'all. And you enjoy the rest of your night. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. (laughs) 